Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McClanahan and in this episode my guests and I are going to be talking about co-production. How we empower people to shape the services they use. It's common for decision makers to talk about involving the people who use services in their planning and design, but all too often reality falls far short of aspiration. However, today we're going to look at a unique project which aimed to place service users firmly at the heart of the decision making process. And the context we're discussing concerns the use of digital communication technology to support social work engagement with disabled service users. The formal name of the project is Improving Experiences Regarding the Use of Digital Communication Technologies in Interactions Between Disabled Service Users and Social Workers in Adult Services, a Qualitative Service User Conducted Inquiry to Inform Best Practice. And I understand why it's been given the moniker Digitech for short. That's quite a mouthful. Joining me to discuss the project are Becky Meakin, Involvement Manager at Shaping Our Lives, a user-led organisation focused on enabling people to have a say in the policies and services that affect their lives, and Dr Luke Gagan, Head of Policy at the British Association of Social Workers. Becky and Luke, how are you both doing? Becky, you first. How are you feeling today? Yes, yeah, really good, thank you. It's a nice sunny day, which makes a difference. It does. Where are you at the moment? I'm in Basingstoke in Hampshire. Okay, okay. And Luke, how about you? Yeah, I'm well. It's a relief to have some sunshine of after what seems unending gloom of the winter. Yes. And it's good to be with you, Andy and Becky. Thank and you. Luke. Hello, everyone. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Becky. Thank you, Luke, for joining me on Let's Talk Social Work. Becky, I'm going to start. Uh, we want to find out about the project. I mentioned in the introduction that co-production is easy to talk about, but it's often very hard to deliver. But I want to learn more about the Digitech project. Um, what was the issue at hand and what was the approach to addressing it? Um, yes, co-production is um, a extremely difficult um, process to, to do properly and to do successfully. Um, Shaping Our Lives is a user-led organisation, so we specialise in techniques around co-production. And in this case, we had done some research during the COVID-19 pandemic that looked into the use of digital technologies for lots of different things, but part of that was for health and social care appointments. And it was clear that it was a complex area with lots of different issues. So we were looking to do more investigation. And in this particular case, we were able to secure some funding to do a project where instead of um, traditional researchers and organisations carrying out the study, we set a goal to actually recruit people with experience using social care services to conduct the whole research study, supported by myself, who's a disabled peer researcher and an academic researcher. And Becky, where were the academics from? The academic uh, partner in the study was from King's College London 
And Sophie, who's not with us here today, but was the um, principal investigator in the study, supported by uh, Professor Glenn Roberts from King's College London. Okay, so Shipping Our Lives are here today. Baswa are here today. King's College aren't. Um, who funded the, the research? Um, the National Institute of Health Research School of Social Care Research is the funder for this particular project. It was a small amount of funding that was available for um, really doing a sort of test of a theory or a question. And in this case, we use the digital technology and use in social work as that um, area we wanted to investigate further. It wasn't intended to be um, a fully comprehensive study over several years because the funding was quite restricted and the time period also quite short. And it was a qualitative study. It was interview based. Isn't that right? Yes, it was. So that was our design. Um, We could have approached the research in many different ways. And we could have looked at other documentation, the previous study that Shaping Our Lives had done and investigated that further Um, I'd done desk research and perhaps interviewed a few people, but we actually decided we would make this fully qualitative and we would use disabled lay researchers um, who would be peers to the interviewees and people who would have experience of working with a social worker to actually conduct all that data gathering, data analysis and then um, the final outputs. So that's a pretty unique um, approach. And it really is placing service user right at the centre of the process. You know, those individuals were fully empowered to undertake the research themselves. But I suppose the, the question I have in relation to that, Becky, is um, what what sort of training did the, the lay researchers have prior to, to commencing the research? Yeah, so this is a really key part of any co-production. If we're going to enable disabled people who are lay researchers, so they were able to apply whether they had any research experience or not, or we looked mainly for their understanding of social work services and their some experience and understanding of using digital technologies. Um, This meant that we had to enable, there were six in total, them all to have a, a basic starting point of understanding of how to do qualitative research, what qualitative research is, the techniques, the practicalities, the issues around data protection, confidentiality, um, and actually provide them with an opportunity to practice before they started. And the study was only eight months long. This was, um, I have to say, quite quite a task, but um, there was a big investment in time in the first two months to providing them with one-to-one training, which myself and Luke from British Association of Social Workers both provided. Um, Online training, um, training from the principal investigator from King's College London, um, training from other areas from King's College London, like uh, data management, um, data analysis, and an and additional reading from relevant uh, reports, research, 
um, academic journals, etc. And, and Becky, I just I just was thinking we should probably actually just take one step back. We're talking about qualitative research project, assuming that all listeners know what qualitative research actually means. Do you want to offer an explanation, just a couple of lines as to what a qualitative approach is? Yes. Yeah, so um, when we're thinking about the experiences people have of taking part in something or using a service, it's we can collect data on that. We can say X amount of people use the service so many times this year um, and they used it for this amount of time, um, etc. And that we would describe as quantitative research. Qualitative research focuses on talking to people about the detail of their experience of using a service or working with a social worker, in this case, using different types of um, communication technologies. Um, And we gather all that narrative um, from their experiences and then put it together and look for themes within the narratives. So we looked at themes within the social worker interviews and those from the disabled adults and pulled from that then some um, key findings which were able to support with direct quotes from the original source data. Thanks, Becky. And it tends to be... Tends to be uh more in-depth sort of analysis, but with a smaller sample. Is that correct? Yes. um, And this study was limited because of time and funding anyway. But um, it depends how much time and money you have. But on the whole, it tends to be a a detailed insight with an individual. So an interview that will take between one and two hours usually, with, um, you know, maybe 20 or more questions. So you really get the chance to delve into their experience and understand, um, you know, what they have to say. And the lay researchers, they were interviewing their peers, but also social workers, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So um, the, um, the idea of using um, disabled lay researchers to interview disabled people who use social work services was intended to remove a lot of the barriers to completing that type of work. There is a sense of, um, and an understanding and certainly evidence that people will talk more openly and with less concern to somebody who is a peer in terms of the services they use and the identity they have. Um, in this case, uh, partly because of resource, we also use the disabled lay researchers to interview the social workers. We did consider whether that might change or influence in any way the social workers' responses. Um, but I think generally it was felt that social workers weren't intimidated by a disabled lay researcher and were able to talk openly and comfortably. So I suppose in a ideal world with more time or money you might consider having social workers interviewing social workers um, as an alternative but I think we feel that it works successfully this time. It doesn't quite um, have the same co-production value though if it, if it was the social workers doing the interviewing I mean having the service users themselves doing the interviewing seems to be fundamental to this to this process and, and uh, the, the uniqueness of the approach. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, the outcomes for those disabled lay researchers has greatly enhanced that because they've had a much broader experience and the interviewing process and the interview design was very different for the two audiences. And it maybe stretched them more to talk to people who aren't peers. So I think it was valuable. It goes without saying now that we are on Zoom. I used to say at the start of episodes, we're meeting over Zoom. I think listeners have probably worked that out. Zoom and uh, meeting on online platforms has become essentially just day-to-day normality for us now. And that's why we're we're discussing this project. But what I'm keen to know is, were the interviews themselves, uh, the interviews that comprised the research, were they conducted exclusively via online platforms or were any interviews conducted in person? When we um, when we costed the project and wrote the application, we did cost for um, some interviews being done face to face if people wanted. Um, the application very much focused on people could do an interview in a way that they wanted. But by the time we got the funding, we were um, very much in the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic lockdown period, so we had to abandon that option. Um, So the options were restricted to um, any form of remote communication that the other person preferred. So that could have been a Zoom meeting, could have been a Microsoft Teams meeting, could have been telephone. And in fact, um, two interviews were done by email over a period of time. So a few questions were sent, responses came, and then the researcher would follow up with further questions, sometimes, you know, asking more about an answer so as they could get a full picture. Okay. And were any efforts made, Becky, to include individuals in the research process, either as researchers or as respondents who have reservations about the use of digital technology? Was everyone involved a really you know, enthusiastic proponent of digital comms and uh, technology or were there some people who were less uh, enthused? Um, it's definitely a mixed bunch. And I think what we'll find as we talk a bit about the um, outputs and the findings from this research is that um, each person has different experiences of using different types of digital communication technologies, um, shaping our lives to the recruitment for um, the disabled people who are interviewed and also supported the recruitment of social workers. And when we were looking for disabled people, we did reach out beyond only advertising through digital communications because by nature that would have skewed the people who responded probably. So we were contacted by phone, by people, um, um, by email in some cases, and some people responded to the social media and the online um, recruitment call. But I think we were able to say that we we were able to find people who wouldn't necessarily be comfortable using online technology. Okay, I think that's fundamentally important that that's understood because, like you said, if it was people who only wanted to use digital communications, it could potentially lead to misleading uh, results. Um, But I want to talk about the results and the outcomes. But just before we do, I want to talk about the process that got to the results and the outcomes. We know how the research was conducted. How was the analysis taken forward and how were the recommendations produced? So because the disabled lay researchers were leading all of the work, um, they were supported um, through regular weekly meetings formally by the principal investigator. But they were given 
choices about how they did things. So we knew we needed to analyze the data um, and there are ways of doing that. That's an acceptable and appropriate way to analyze um, data in this type of study. But they, um, because they're all disabled themselves and some of them had different barriers to accessing different types of documents, for example, they design their own system. So within the guidelines of analysing data in a good and uh, robust way, they created colour coding, which helped some of the people who, uh, for example, one person's dyslexic, um, so the colour coding helped them. And they organised data into spreadsheets because that was an easier way for somebody using um, a screen reader to be able to navigate around the data. So, um, yes, guided, but designed very much by them. Uh, The data was then further analysed through the um, MVivo online um, data analysis system that supports analysis of um, experience-based data. Um, And that was done by King's College London because it's something you can only really do... uh, led by one person, once several people get involved, it gets very complicated. Um, And that came back and supported what the disabled lay researchers had already analysed. In vivo, it takes me right back to 2006 doing an MRES (laughs) in Keele University. Um, And uh, I think that was the last time I actually used in vivo. But that's really really helpful. Thanks, um, Becky, for explaining that process. Now, key themes... What was actually identified? Uh, what what key themes um, came through in the recommendations? Um, I think this is something that Luke would be um, able to talk about um, with more understanding as his background at the British Association of Social Workers. But for me, I think for the disabled participants, um, it was all about choice, um, wanting and needing uh, a choice of what digital communication technology they um, were asked to use. Uh, And I think Luke may talk a bit more about that. Um, It was about them understanding that they have the right to a choice uh, and the social workers understanding that the individuals have a right to a choice. And I think the other key area is that different communication methods work for different things, and that's quite personal to each individual. So some people may find that um, an assessment over Zoom is actually quite comfortable, for example, and a nice way for them to do it. Other people very much want to be face-to-face, and that's for many different reasons. That's because of the impairments and their health conditions, their um, environment in terms of their home environment, um, their um, privacy, whether they're actually sharing a space with somebody else, whether doing it in person means that they can be more open and they can sense body language. So lots and lots of different factors. Yes, I think... What was exciting for me was uh, when Becky and Sophie came to me 
I kind of thought, yeah, 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 you know, kind of digital's, you know, gone to the next stage in the pandemic. You know, lots more social workers have got smartphones from work. We're all using Zoom. We're all using Teams. But I think that that disabled lay researcher thing really sold this research to me because I thought this is this is really different. This isn't just talking about co-production. This is this is doing it mm. right. And what we did was we brought together uh, disabled service users and social workers in a couple of, of, of workshops and shared the findings uh, with both groups uh, before we started those conversations all together about what the recommendations should be. And um, I didn't say this at the time to Sophie and Becky, but I was actually quite anxious about this because I'd been in these sorts of workshops before where things had gone, you know, badly wrong and, uh, you know, things were said and then people get defensive and then the whole thing kind of unravels. I would, I would push you for examples, Luke, but I'm sh- I know you won't tell me. <laughs> well, I, I, I am going to tell you because they, the, the classic one... <laughs> was about, I mean, there are others, but the classic one was uh, Teams and Zoom, right? Now, for somebody like me, it's, you know, it doesn't really matter whether somebody contacts me by Teams or Zoom. But for a lot of people with disabilities, Zoom is much more user-friendly, and so they were saying to their social workers, please stop using team, uh, Teams, I want to use Zoom. And social workers were saying, actually, our local authority doesn't allow us to use uh, Zoom. We have to use Teams. That is the only thing that we are allowed allowed to use, right? And when, you know, both sides talked about it, right, we came up with this uh, recommendation, right, which said, yes, you know, uh, social work service users do want choice, but also feel able as a social worker to explain to the social work service users that you may not have access uh, to Zoom because that's the departmental departmental rule and we had a very similar conversation about uh, egress which is the secure email uh, system and service users saying do you really need to use this and social workers saying yeah yeah that's that's the departmental line and service users saying well yeah but do you really need to encrypt an email which says are you okay for 3 30 this afternoon can't you just put that in a text or something and social workers saying oh yeah well you know we, some of us have got a bit more flexibility than others and sitting in on these conversations and kind of furiously writing all this down it was what i call these sort of aha moments where you could see both social workers and service users getting a much richer understanding of where the other party was coming from and this light bulb moment of thinking yeah yeah i get that you know so what do we do together to work this through 
And a lot of the recommendations that came out were, you know, both sides, not really sides, but different responsibilities and roles, thinking what can we do to make this better together. So if I'm getting this right, big focus, as Becky was saying, on choice uh, and the, the needs of the individual and those needs being listened to. And look, as you're saying, communication, actual discussion about the approaches so that if a service user prefers an approach which simply isn't on the table as far as the local authorities um, uh, able to provide, that the social worker explains why that is so there's not a misunderstanding and it's not a case that that individual feels their views aren't being listened to. Have I understood that correctly? That's right. And, you know, we also made the recommendation that, you know, uh, you know, social workers don't 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 practice in a vacuum. They practice in an organisational context and, you know, managers and leaders in adult social work need to look at the systems and digital technology they are offering these service users and ask themselves quite tough questions like, you know, by not using Zoom, you know, am I actually being exclusionary in some kind of, 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 of way? So it's not just about this research influencing individual social work practice, crucial though that is, it's also about those who are responsible for writing these policies, making these decisions, thinking, hmm, are there practical implications of this that we haven't yet thought through and what do we do about it? Absolutely. And I think this is why this research is so valuable. The question I wanted to move on to, though, Luke, was, you know, were there any examples, did any examples arise in the research of ways in which the shift to digital communications has actually inhibited rather than supported the development of relationships? I can think of examples, Luke, that, that have come to me of, you know, some people just saying that I, I can't I can't communicate well over a Zoom call, and it, you know it's 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 making it harder for me to to be listened to. Did did those examples come up at any stage? They did, and another of those sort of mutual aha moments was recognizing, you know, that uh, you know video conferencing could be extremely useful, save time, energy, sitting in a traffic jam, whatever. But both social workers and disabled service users saying there is a central role for the face-to-face -face meeting, right? That's incredibly encouraging to hear, yeah. Uh, and disabled service users were saying this is because, for example, you know, it's much easier to interact face-to-face. -face. Some disabled service users were saying that. Uh, Becky might want to say more about this in a bit. You know, it's much easier to interact face to face. I can get a sense of the person. You know, uh, you know, I, I get all those you know contextual uh, cues which I don't get in video conferencing. Uh, but also saying, you know, it's difficult to explain my life through the framework of a screen. You know, what's going on out of view that I may want the social worker to to know about, but maybe I don't want to be explicit about it. And social workers were saying a very similar thing. They were saying, yeah, it can be convenient, it can be useful, but actually we, you know, there may be important things like adult safeguarding mm -hmm. that we're missing because everything is being viewed through 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 the laptop 
through the laptop I mean, screen. You can literally, I mean, you can put a mask on your Zoom. Uh, you know, I'm sure in, in a social work interaction that wouldn't be something that would be supported. But I mean, I know from having meetings in my front room, you know, it's very easy to make your, your space look like it's pristine and tidy when it's actually chaotic. And, and there's so much that can be hidden when you're doing that sort of online communication. And so, I mean, again, you know, one of these things where, you know, individual practice uh, connects with, you know, organisational expectations a number of social workers were saying you know there's a bit of a push on us to say you know you don't need to do the face-to-face stuff you can do it all by all by video uh, conferencing and then pushing back against that and saying no no this is really important that you know we we do this and sometimes this needs a, a home visit and it was again it was sort of one of these aha moments where uh, disabled social work service users were also saying yeah you know, don't don't throw this baby out with the bathwater. This is this is really important uh, for us. That that's a fair sort of assessment, isn't it, Becky? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think um, the relationship with your social worker um, is partly built around that sort of face to face experience as well it's quite difficult I think to build a relationship with somebody over the phone or via email correspondence and clearly face-to-face is a much stronger method Um, I would say as part of the study we did a focus group with people learning disabilities as a just a a very first step into looking at um, that community of people and the additional barriers they experience. And for them, um, I think not having face-to-face meetings during pandemic had actually had a much greater impact. They had a lot of barriers to using alternative digital communication technologies um, and they were very used to having face-to-face contact and making um, an alternative provision for that when many people didn't have um, access to the internet um, or they can't afford the data to have access to the internet or they don't know how to use the technology or they don't own the hardware, all these things. It was actually really difficult and um, many were just relying on telephone calls, but there is a limit to what you can achieve in a telephone call. So. I mean, that's a critical point, Becky, the issue of digital exclusion. It's something we heard, you know, across different um, sectors. You know, we heard about it in education as well during the pandemic, you know, with young people, children and young people that didn't necessarily have the IT equipment to to learn online. Um, How do we ensure that people in, you know, that are experiencing digital exclusion don't get a second rate service? And I'm asking that in recognition of the fact that we know there is an established drive uh, by government to make its services, quote, digital by default. So how do we ensure that people that may not be able to get online, maybe they don't have stable broadband, maybe they can't afford the, the equipment, how do we ensure that they continue to have their needs met? Um, well, this came out very strongly in the research we did um, about COVID-19, use of digital um, technologies before we moved into this study. And it was one of the things that raised great concern um, to us. And the recommendations from that were it needs to be part of a service provider's um, portfolio 
that if this is the way we're going to work with these people, for example, using Zoom, um, that they are they have budget and provision to ensure people have equipment and that they have a you know a 4G a good 4G sing- signal um through you know added on data services etc um because otherwise those people are going to experience inequalities and have a poorer service um the other key areas and this came up for the social workers as well I'm very supportive of social workers in this situation who were saying um they've just had to learn how to get on with it there's not been very much support probably little or no training on how to use these different technologies effectively they certainly said um they wanted more uh training and experience of how to work with disabled people and clearly disabled people some will have grasped using zoom very quickly because um they're confident competent they use technology a lot in their day-to-day lives but many won't have had the opportunity to use zoom other than when they've suddenly been confronted with you know i i need to speak to my social worker and this is now how i've got to do it um, so that training, general support, guidance for both the service providers and the people using the services, I think it's really important. Were there any examples uncovered of training that is happening in social work teams? Or is it just a case that social workers are having to kind of, you know, make it up as they go along on their own initiative? There was a, a real sense of that. Uh, making it up as they go along and one of the recommendations was a kind of plea to um, to departments to kind of look at look at the training the training needs and a particularly powerful example I I thought was uh, documents which had been sent to uh, a blind person and the blind person said well I can't actually read these so the social worker had gone off and scanned the documents and then sent the scans through electronically and of course not not realizing that optical character recognition can't actually read uh can't read uh scanned documents which um i didn't i didn't know either and i think there was a a conversation about how do we provide technical support and there was a really interesting uh you know we had social workers from a range of local authority departments some local authority departments had you know in-house tech support services that they would support uh uh, service users uh some local authorities there were voluntary sector uh, organizations who would who would provide that and some local authorities had neither. So a bit of this kind of postcode lottery as to what kind of tech support you would get. But also a recognition that while some tech support might need a, uh, a specialist, some tech support could be given by social workers. So the example given was, you know, well, I can't read the PDF. Oh, well, you need to read, download the PDF 
reader, which is free and takes 30 seconds, and you click here. That is tech support, but it makes all the difference and it's relatively easy for us to do. We're also kind of talking about this as if it's uh, a case that the service users need the support. I mean, unquestionably, some social workers will also need support to use technology. For some people, using Zoom and Teams was an entirely new experience at the at the beginning of the pandemic. I know some colleagues still aren't overly comfortable with using those platforms yet. So, yeah, let's not forget that it, it works both ways. Uh, ab- absolutely, which is the point about, you know, uh, scanning the documents, not realising that a screen reader can't can't read them yeah oh just on that example um uh becky are there is are there any differences between zoom and teams in terms of how those pieces of software can interact with screen reader technology are there are there preferred um other preferred um, platforms from your perspective yeah so um just to explain to listeners so i'm blind and i use a screen reader and like everyone else i had to learn to use zoom and microsoft teams very suddenly um, in order to carry on working. And it took me a lot longer to um, learn to use Microsoft Teams. And one of the key problems is, and it's only been through my own perseverance, I've worked this out, is Microsoft link all their products and they build in little things to stop or to make it much more difficult for you to use other people's products. So, for example, if you if you launch a Microsoft Teams meeting and your default browser on your computer is Google, quite often it won't work because they want you to use Microsoft Edge. And I found through deep frustration that actually... I just thought one day, how about if I try this link and put it in the Microsoft Edge browser, which I happen to have loaded as well on my laptop. It worked first time. They also link it to their Microsoft Teams app, which takes over your entire laptop once you load it. So I've loaded it three times. I've taken it off three times because it's so disruptive for me getting on with my world. And this is how I found I could you know, access Microsoft Teams is actually using the Microsoft Edge browser and pasting the link in. But I'm, you know, I'm probably nearly an advanced user of Screen Reader. I use it all day, every day, have done for 10 years. Um, I know how to change my settings. I pretty much know how to do most things on the laptop, but I am in the minority and it's only because I've had to. So, it makes it so difficult. And the difference with Zoom is it just sits independently and it doesn't matter what other things you've got running in the background. It just works. It's not perfect, but it's less likely to cause you difficulties to just simply click on a Zoom link and open the meeting. It's less imperfect. Should we say it like that? Yes. Yeah. I don't I don't know anyone who uses Microsoft Edge, I've got to be honest. I don't think I've ever used Microsoft Edge in my life. Mm. Now, look, coming back to you, um, I'm curious to know, are there any are there currently any regulatory guidelines on the use of technology for social workers when engaging with service users? I think the real challenge is, Andy, is that the the technology continually outruns the guidance and the policies and 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 the procedures, um, 
And so, you know, in social work, uh, you know, none of us used video conferencing. It was a fairly rare thing, even outside of social work. And the pandemic pushed us all into using it both work and 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 socially. And it was one of the reasons why, you know, I think NIHR wanted to fund this research to find out what was going on and what was the uh, the impact. So I think not part of the uh, the research, but you know, me 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 thinking out loud on your show is that really as social workers, we've got to be incredibly uh, nimble to think about, you know, where te- digital technology is going and how it sort of, you know, impacts on the social work task, both for good uh, and for bad. I think the trick is not to think that, you know, digital is the solution to all of our problems, which you get in some parts but you also get the idea that you know anything digital digital is the work of the devil yeah which is the other the other extreme and of course you know as social workers we're used to dealing with things that are messy and untidy and it's finding a way between those two two extremes but you know again you know why I you know was excited about this research from the word go putting social work service users at the heart of that and saying what works for you your mention of the work of the devil just takes me on now this i'm going to acknowledge this is a bit of a tangent but i think it is relevant right i don't like emojis and i don't like emojis in text communication and i think i'm in a in a very small minority in that i don't use emojis or like them but you know language is constantly evolving and we have gotten to the point where the use of emojis are starting to become an established part of communication if not language did that come out in the research did anybody just out of curiosity did anyone flag up a difficulty with either trying to communicate in emojis or being communicated to in emojis now Interestingly, for disabled people, particularly if you um, find typing difficult or um, for many reasons, because of dexterity or understanding, being able to spell and read things comfortably, lots of different reasons, then an imagery is a, a really quick way of communicating quite a lot of words for some people. Um, and one of the guidance pieces in uh, the document, the advice for disabled people when using technology with social workers, is that you need to be careful in what context you use them. Um, It needs to be appropriate. So it might be all right for saying, yes, I'm fine for 3pm, you know, smiley face um, on a text. But is it appropriate if you're putting notes onto a formal report or assessment, probably not. So I think this is the key thing. And the concern, I think, for both disabled people and social workers is they can be interpreted in many different ways. I, I thought, again, we did talk about emojis and I, I thought it was a, a really interesting conversation. And again, it was like, you know, in some circumstances, for some people, 
they they could work right uh but not always appropriate and they didn't always work and again this you know wasn't something that was part of the research but subsequently has kind of cropped up is um uh people who are neurodiverse can read emojis which rely so much on alleged agreed assessments of what a facial expression means to interpret it something completely different and i've had an example of that recently which you know i won't i won't i, I won't bore you with but again it's a kind of thinking about you know why we're using this and is it is it appropriate for for the person thanks thanks becky that was really helpful now I want to move on to uh, what the research is actually going to do and what it's going to inform. Look, I believe Baswa is publishing a practice guide um, to help social workers deal with some of these issues in terms of uh, communicating using digital technology. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes, there's a whole uh, range of things coming out of of, of the research, uh, Andy. I mean, there's going to be a guide for disabled service users, which Becky might want to say something about. There's going to be a uh, practice guide uh, for for social workers, um, and uh, that will be available on the 13th of, uh, of, of, of April. Um, but we will also be doing a, um, a webinar which will look at the findings a bit more uh, a bit more formally. But we're because you know the the whole shift to digital has been, it's affected every social worker, you know, it's difficult to find a social worker who, you know, this shift hasn't, hasn't affected. It's so important that we get the guidance uh, and the practice recommendations out there so people can, you know, reflect. And, you know, as I always say, think, what do I do differently when I go into work on, on, on Monday morning? And there are lots of those things, suggestions in the guidance about what I do differently on 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 Monday morning. And even for me, um, you know, I'm not in direct practice in my role, but actually it, it, it's been a bit of a wake up call for me, Andy, <laughs> to kind of think, how do I interact with uh, disabled people through 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 digital? You know, am I? Am I being as responsible and as flexible as I as I as I should be? Thanks, Luke. Becky, the, the the guide that Luke was talking about for service users, I hadn't actually been aware of that. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So um, again, these guides have been um, the guide for uh, disabled people using social work services has been uh, written primarily by the disabled researchers, um, and um, it's a a very comprehensive but very easy to read guide and um, we're having um, an easy read version created as well and and it it's interesting because it reflects what we found out and that's not only tips on you know using different communications when they may be appropriate and when they're not but also um, giving people more understanding of Things like what is a reasonable adjustment for a communication with a social worker? 
if you know you need to use a particular way of working with a social worker or with anyone else for that matter who's providing a service in the health and social care but in this case social workers then it may be that it's actually a reasonable adjustment it's a no-cost reasonable adjustment that you can request and you have a right to um again exploring workarounds for things like these very difficult encrypted um, systems that are used for sending documentation um, so that people um, can actually access information that they need to from their social worker. Um, it's a little bit about the rights people have um, to services in a way that's uh, accessible for them. And there's also information there about where you can get help help and information. If you do need to use, you know, digital communications and you really don't know where to start because you've had no experience, there is some guidance for that. And Becky, when and where is that going to be available? So that is um, finished and the Easy Read version will be finished um, in about a week's time. But we're being held up by the funder slightly um who has a process of looking at everything so um i think the 15th of april is hopefully the date when we will be able to release everything okay and, and keep an eye on the shipping our lives website would that be correct that's absolutely correct so we are hosting all the materials from the shaping our lives website so you'll be able to get both the advice for disabled people and also the advice of social workers, plus the British Association of Social Workers will also um, be providing access to those materials too. Becky, thank you. That's really helpful. And Luke, thank you so much for joining me on Let's Talk Social Work. I've learned a lot. It's been great talking to you both. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs>